Welcome to the Global Visions Podcast. My name is Caroline Allen, and I'm one of the editors-in-chief of the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biannual publication on pressing issues in international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. Global Visions serves as a platform for critical discussion on topics covered in the journal. Each episode will feature a member of our editorial team in conversation with leading academics, activists, and policymakers. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Temple University professor Artemy Kalinovsky, for a discussion on Soviet and Russian influence over Central Asia. Professor Kalinovsky has maintained a distinguished career in academia, with a focus on Soviet economic and political development in Central Asia. He was a senior lecturer in East European Studies at the University of Amsterdam for a decade, and he is now a professor of history and political science at Temple University. Over his career, Professor Kalinowski has also published two books, A Long Goodbye on the Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan and Laboratory of Socialist Development, which focuses on Cold War politics and decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan. More recently, Professor Kalinowski has been working on a project studying the entanglements between socialist and capitalist approaches in contemporary Central Asia. Professor Kalinowski, thank you so much for joining us today. What originally drew you to study the Soviet development project in Central Asia? And how would you characterize the relevance of this research to contemporary political and geopolitical issues? Um, well, my own kind of journey to, um, to studying this um, was kind of it, it wasn't very direct. So when I was when I was an undergraduate, you know, the uh, United States was uh, invading Afghanistan and, and Iraq, and um, that kind of got me interested in studying diplomatic history and, and Cold War history um, try, to try to understand kind of the origins of these uh, American entanglements. Originally, I actually thought I was going to study U.S. foreign policy, um, but because I grew up knowing Russian, um, you know, my professors quite wisely pushed me to try to study the. Uh, Soviet side of the story, and I ended up studying, um, as an undergrad, I actually ended up uh, doing some research, both on the Soviet war in Afghanistan, but also on Soviet policy in the North Caucasus. Um, I ended up doing my PhD on the Soviet war in Afghanistan, and that became my first book. But even as I was writing that, my focus started to shift a little. So, you know, I started kind of doing very much a kind of diplomatic history and, and a story about high politics and, and trying to figure out how decisions were made in the Kremlin. But you know, two things I kind of, or th three things I realized. One was that, you know, a big part of the way the Soviets hope to win the war is through, you know, what we might today call state building um, or even kind of development through counterinsurgency, right? So that is this idea that, you know, if we just make life better for uh, the people of Afghanistan, understood in terms of, you know, getting them access to food and building schools and roads and whatever, uh, that will make the government in Kabul legitimate. Uh, and then uh, that's how the war will come to an end. Two, that, you know, it is a significant reason that the Soviets take so long to realize they need to get out is because even the people on the ground who are being very critical of the Soviet war effort are going to say, okay, but we have to give these things time to work, right? They're basically saying, okay, we haven't done enough of this, uh, and so on. And then three, of course, is that, you know, Central Asia played a big part in this uh, war effort, right? So, there were a number of kind of commentators in the West who said, oh my God, you know, the Soviet Union is invading a Muslim country where a lot of people uh, are of the same ethnicity as a number of Soviet uh, nationalities. Uh, you know, this is going to be terrible for the Soviet Union. And I could tell that 
you know, nobody in Moscow was really worried about this, right? They, they didn't think that uh, there was going to be blowback or anything else. But I was very curious to understand why, right? And, and, and what was the role that was being played by Central Asians? Because I learned not just soldiers, but you know, translators, um, advisors, uh, engineers, all sorts of people were going over there, intelligence officers as well. You know, and then there was, and then there were two kind of smaller things, which drew me from kind of doing that kind of work to working on what was, you know, Soviet Central Asia, one of which is that I'd started studying Persian to work in Afghanistan, but had never managed to get to Afghanistan. And I found that very frustrating. I wanted to work in a place that I could actually go to and kind of experience living there. But, you know, I had been studying Persian, which also meant that I could uh, access Tajik fairly easily um, once I got there. And I also realized I wanted to be working on the history of the Soviet Union, right? And I wanted to understand how things worked within the Soviet Union better. Um, and so that's what, what drew me to starting a project on Tajikistan, which was actually originally supposed to be a project about Central Asian veterans of the war in Afghanistan. Um, and it was when I got there, and I, and I described this incident in the book, that you know one of the first interviews I do, um, and I ask somebody, you know, why, why they're still a communist, you know, or why they became a communist after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and they tell me the story about all the great things the Soviet Union does in terms of development, um, and it made me kind of realize that actually I really need to be thinking much more about you know, not just what the Soviet Union does in terms of development aid abroad, which um, a number of historians have started to pay attention to, but actually also thinking about its relationship um, within two, two different parts of the Soviet Union uh, in those terms. So that's a long roundabout way of telling you how I got there, I guess. We originally reached out to you to contribute to the dissolution of the Soviet Union section in the recently published edition of the journal. On that note, could you please tell our listeners some of what you learned about the methods and goals of Soviet development through, for example, your research in the archives of the Communist Party of Tajikistan for the book, The Laboratory of Socialist Development? Uh, so first of all, my apologies. I think you invited me right when I was moving from the Netherlands uh, to the US, which was a fairly um, crazy time. Um, okay. But I contributed to, to what would have been an excellent, I mean, it would have been fun to take part in that. So I guess one of the things I ended up realizing is that and, and this is obvious once you know when i when i say it, you'll realize this is very obvious but you know development is kind of central to the whole socialist project right i mean i mean the socialist project very kind of explicitly is about moving from one stage of history to another right so it is you know the the people who made the revolution and even a lot of their opponents you know thought of russia being in a particular stage of development um, kind of thinking about what it would take to get to another one so they could eventually get to communism and saw their goal as kind of pushing Russia through that process. Now, we know that they did that ultimately in a very chaotic and a very violent way, but then in relation to how they try to do that in other parts of the Soviet Union, of course, it brings kind of further complications in that, you know, they start to say, okay, well, you know, Russia's behind Europe, but where are, let's say, you know, the Central Asians relative to Russia? or the Georgians relative to Russia. Uh, and so there's another kind of hierarchy that's created there. And one of the things I argue in the book, and not everybody will agree, is that the way that the Soviets think about development, and maybe this is something that's true for kind of this whole idea of development more broadly, is that on the one hand, it creates these hierarchies, and yet it's always creating ways to collapse those hierarchies, right? Because it's saying, you know, ultimately, we're on the same march of history, and the whole purpose of the Soviet Union is to make sure we're all kind of marching along, right? So to the extent that the Soviet Union fails at development, it fails at being the Soviet Union, 
right? And that, of course, is tied up also with its, you know, equally controversial claims of being anti-colonial or anti-imperialist, even though it encompasses pretty much the entire uh, former Russian uh, empire, right? Um, so those things are intimately collected. Now, what, what you start to learn from the archives is you start to get a, and not just the archives, I should say, you know, from the archives, from oral histories, from memoirs, from reading the press at the time, is you start to get a better appreciation of the role that is being played in this by um, Central Asians themselves. And for my research, that includes, you know, members of the Communist Party, that includes experts, which play a kind of more important role from the 50s onwards. So the people who train as economists, as uh, sociologists, uh, but also as engineers. And it includes the kind of intelligentsia more, more broadly, right? So the people who run the universities and teach at the universities and, and the schools and so on and so forth. And on the one hand, what you see is, what you come to understand is, of course, the state, and not to, you know, not to uh, over-exaggerate the autonomy of these people, because, of course, they work with the system that's fairly autocratic and that, you know, has kind of one idea about the way history is supposed to march. Um, on the other hand, you know, to the extent that the Soviet Union wants to do something with Central Asia or with any region, it needs to make sense of it through somebody's eyes, right? So I like to play with, you know, James Scott's much debated kind of book, Seeing Like a State, right? And I say, okay, so who's, who's seeing for the state? Who, who does the job of seeing? And, and, and I think from the 50s onward, that is increasingly in Central Asia, that's Central Asians themselves. So it is you know, often Central Asian scholars or, or Central Asian planners or bureaucrats who are saying, look, well, you know, we have this many people here and this is their standard of living. And this is what we need to do to change their standard of living, et cetera, et cetera. Or this is where we can develop this industry, but we shouldn't develop this industry and so on and so forth. Obviously, they're working with a very kind of circumscribed uh, range, within a very circumscribed range of possibilities. But um, nevertheless, they're, they're the way they see is important and what they argue for counts. And you can trace the way that their understanding of what should happen gets passed on through the chain all the way to Moscow, right? Both in formal and informal ways, because inevitably some people have much closer connections to the Soviet leadership than, than others do. Um, so that was really interesting. And, and in fact, you know, it's something that I was able to get both through archives in Moscow and, um, uh, and locally. What benefits did the Soviet Union reap from its engagement with Central Asia? Apart from economic factors, what role did the so-called Soviet South play in supporting the image that the Soviet Union projected internationally? Right. I mean, yeah, so, you know, the economic one is, is well, they're both very controversial, right? So on the economic one, critics of the Soviet Union, including ones from Central Asia, will say, well, you know, um, you made us produce cotton, which you then sold on the world market and our foreign currency. And, you know, what we got out of it was a pittance and, uh, you know, lots of ecological and, and health problems. Um, and what the Soviet Union will say, well, you know, yes, they only produce cotton, but we sent all this money to build industries and universities and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Isaac Scarborough, has done a really fascinating study where he shows that it's, in a way, neither side is right, because at least in terms of financial flows, it ends up kind of evening out. But of course, in a political sense, that also doesn't matter, right? I mean, for, you know, Russians who want to say, you know, we were just giving them everything, they'll still be able to say that. And, and for people who want to say, you know, they were just extracting from us and, you know, this led to horrible consequences, they're also completely right. 
the cultural thing is, I think, in some ways, well, for me at least, it's it's become more interesting because um, the Soviet Union already in the 1920s basically says, okay, we ended up reconquering this area, but we're not colonialists. So what do we do? Well, okay, we create these republics uh, and we try to promote people who are native or indigenous to this to these republics or the titular, titular nationality um, to run things. And then we're also going to show the world uh, that actually we have kind of the best model of anti-colonialism because it's not just kind of formal decolonization, but it's also kind of moving us past the kind of development inequalities that made colonization uh, both possible and necessary from the point of view of capitalism. And in the 20s, this already plays some role, right? So, you know, um, people are already going to Central Asia to kind of check this out in, in the 1920s. Uh, founder of the Indian Communist Party, Edmund Roy, most famously. Uh, also, the American poet Langston Hughes uh, goes out there and writes a fascinating memoir that comes out in the 50s um, about his time there. But then because of kind of Stalinism and the way the Soviet Union gets much more closed off to the world, that kind of comes to an end in the early 30s. And then it's revived in the 1950s now that there is this big wave of decolonization happening across the world. Um, and the Soviet leadership um, kind of realizes that it needs to, again, kind of prove, if it wants to engage with the post-colonial world, it needs to prove its bona fides as, a, um, as an anti-colonial power. And I think this has interesting effects within Central Asia. I mean, so one is that it makes Central Asia important again, right? So they start recruiting much more for uh, diplomatic service, uh, even more for cultural exchanges um, from the area. They, they start investing much more into cultural facilities and uh, people become much more global. I mean, it was amazing. You know, the Soviet Union was a place that really restricted foreign travel. Um, and yet almost every intellectual I'd spoken with had traveled abroad in Central Asia, right? Um, and very often this was to uh, countries of the Middle East, uh, South Asia in particular, but not only, right? And all this was part of this idea that, okay, they'll go abroad, they'll learn something useful, but also they'll show off, right, just kind of how advanced their position is within the Soviet Union, how great the Soviet Union is, and so on. But this also has two interesting political effects. I mean, one is that people will use this to argue for changing the way things are done in the Soviet Union, right? So for saying, you know, hey, uh, if you're going to claim that we're allowed to have our own culture, then, you know, we need more newspapers in, in our languages, or you know, we need to fix up these, um, you know, uh, architectural things that you want to show off, whether that's mosques or, or medesas or something else, even though, you know, their existence is not really in accordance with Soviet atheism. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that over time, a lot of these people who go abroad will also reflect on the Soviet Union, you know, through their experiences abroad, right? So it was really interesting for me speaking to people who would and it was not, you know, some people would talk about, you know, the relative freedom, the relative kind of religious uh, freedom that was available elsewhere. But other, a lot of times it was really much more mundane things, right? So, um, you know, I'll never forget interviewing one engineer who worked I think, in Libya and saying, I saw something that looked like a, you know, a, a lot where they were selling cars and it turned out to be a junkyard. And to me, they looked like perfectly, you know, good cars, right? So this idea that in the Soviet Union, you could barely... Uh, find a junk car, you know, a piece of junk if you wanted to, and that here people were just kind of throwing perfectly good cars away because there was such abundance. So these kind of things were very interesting, and I think they do contribute to the way that people 
end up critiquing the Soviet Union um, in the 1970s, particularly in the 1980s. The Laboratory of Socialist Development begins with a fascinating anecdote about a local communist activist that you had met who had joined the Tajik Communist Party after the fall of the Soviet Union. Both across Central Asia and within Tajikistan, what has been the legacy of Soviet development? How did integration into the USSR transform political dynamics and discourses of modernity in Central Asia? Yeah, I mean, the, the legacies are, of course, you know, you, you see them everywhere. I mean, the physical legacies, both, again, you know, the environmental damage, like look at the RLC, right? The consequences of Soviet nuclear testing in Kazakhstan and the Soviet space program um, and of Soviet factories and, and cotton, uh, they're everywhere. To a large extent, the infrastructure uh, is the one that was built in the Soviet Union and is being rebuilt and maintained by post-Soviet governments, by international donors, um, by people themselves. The kind of electricity system, right? I mean, this, this thing that's set up where the hydropower states, you know, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are supposed to sell or pass electricity onto Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan. And they're supposed to use their hydrocarbons to kind of feed electricity back to the system. That sort of has come apart, uh, although periodically that, you know, the, the people try to revive that. Right? So the physical legacy is, is, is still very present. In terms of the cities, of course, it, it gradually uh, starts to fade away, especially in places like Dushanbe, where you have a construction boom and, uh, you know, more and more kind of Soviet construction is, is being demolished in, in favor of newer things. In terms of, of course, you know, we, we all know that the people who ran the show until recently were all Soviet kind of cadres, um, to an extent still are. What's more interesting for me now in my research is to continue following those experts I mentioned earlier, or at least the younger generation of those experts, and seeing what they do after 1991. Because one of the things I realized when I was interviewing some of these people is, you know, they don't just disappear on December 25th, 1991. You know, they still, uh, well, one, they have expertise, and two, they need work. And so I, I would ask them sometimes at the end of interviews, like, so what did you do in the 90s? And, you know, some of them ended up having to leave their jobs and do other things for a while, but some of them ended up working in one way or another for the World Bank, for uh, the UNDP, for these international organizations that come in. And the reason is because they, you know, they have that expertise. They know how to, you know, say, okay, we need to conduct research among the peasants in this district. They may have a different way of doing that research, but they know how to get there. They know how to find people. They know how to get the samples and so on and so forth. And I think to an extent, and this is my hypothesis, is, is that something similar happens, right? Where Yes, these international organizations have their own paradigms for, you know, what development looks like, but to an extent, they also end up seeing things through the eyes of these, uh, of these people. Um, and so I'm trying to understand partially, you know, how do these people assert themselves in this new world where the system they have been a part of is discredited? Uh, but on the other hand, to what extent do they shape the way that international organizations uh, and the interacting with this region. And it's worth noting that it's not a simple case. I think sometimes people say, well, you know, this is just post-Soviet, right? Or this is just kind of Soviet people hanging around. To some extent, that's true. But particularly if you're talking about, you know, a slightly kind of younger generation, these are people who are very, sometimes very much a part of, or at the very least aware of, the very heated debates of the late Soviet period. Right, so all the critiques of the Soviet Union, the way things were done there. Um, you know, some of them were moderates in that debate. Some of them were radical. Some of them were very conservative. 
But the point is, they're not simply replicating, you know, an, an monolithic Soviet discourse or, or a Soviet way of doing things. Looking through some UN documents, I found that it's actually that very late Soviet critique uh, of the situation that ends up appearing then in those uh, UN documents, and in part because those UN documents, um, you know, like UN Human Development Reports, are written substantially by um, Central Asians themselves. How much of an effect that has on what development policy actually is is something that's still, you know, I'm still investigating. But, but, you know, those are some of the things that I'm kind of looking at now. You've also written a number of articles on contemporary topics like Russian activity in Afghanistan and American foreign policy in Central Asia. What would you say are the most common mistakes that the U.S. or the West makes in its foreign policy strategy towards Central Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends with which which kind of sphere we're talking about, right? Um, you know, U.S. involvement in Central Asia in the immediate uh, in the kind of post-independence period was fairly limited uh, on the one hand, right? You, I mean, USAID was was around, uh, and international organizations were around. But I think a lot of them entered this space with this kind of presumption that, okay, you know, the Soviet Union was this thing that everybody rejects, and now we can move on. To. And I think what they found is people's attitudes to the Soviet Union and its, in, and its legacy was actually much more complicated. And I don't think everybody was kind of prepared to, to kind of work with that, right? I think it maybe also took a long time for people to realize that ultimately these are countries that are going to be interacting much more with Russia, uh, with China, um, with um, even, you know, Afghanistan than they are with the United States, you know, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I always found it interesting that, you know, the U.S. would kind of be talking about maintaining influence in, in, in Central Asia and, and kind of doing these development projects and USAID would come in and make sure that the USAID logo was promptly displayed everywhere. But what they were doing was so minuscule compared to what China was doing, right? I mean, and this is already particularly, let's say, the last 10 years, right? And, you know, in the last decade, it's China that builds roads. It's China that builds factories. It's China that builds, um, you know, other kinds of infrastructure. Obviously, also controversial in so many ways, right? I mean, one question that everybody has is, you know, to what extent is China doing this for Central Asia? To what extent is China doing it for its own interests? Uh, to what extent is it, you know, particular Chinese companies taking advantage of this kind of situation now to, to, you know, to pursue their own interests? Also controversial, of course, because the situation in Xinjiang, which which people, particularly in in Kazakhstan and, and uh, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, look at and 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 you know uh, are worried about. But in any case, it so dwarfs anything that the United States does in terms of economic aid that, you know. To my mind, with what you know, USAID showing up and saying, "Oh, we opened up this computer center and, and kind of putting its logo up," it just looks sort of silly. Um, and and to a lot of people there, I think it almost looks not not genuine. I think you know beyond that, particularly after 9/11, the U.S. approached this region primarily from a security point of view, and not just this region, right? But it was primarily about what does this region mean to us in terms of the war on terror um, and the situation in Afghanistan, um, which you know some critics would say. Um, has led to the U.S. Uh, kind of uh, accepting or looking away from uh, authoritarianism in the region, which I think is true. But I think even I think what the critics also get wrong is that again the U.S. just isn't that relevant uh, in the region. 
at the end of the day, you know, to the extent that foreign powers help, you know, keep anybody in power there, it's not the United States that's doing it. You know, the United States, by not being too critical, might legitimize it, um, you know, somebody in power to some extent, but really it's Chinese economic support, Russian military support, Russian intelligence support. And as we've just seen in Kazakhstan, now overtly write the message that Russia can step in and provide you know, a security um, kind of guarantee in the, in the event that a regime is challenged. Um, that's what's important. What do you believe are the differences and similarities between Russian and Chinese strategies in Central Asia? And are there any tensions between the two countries stemming from their differing foreign policy goals? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, up until a few years ago, you could almost say that, you know, China is handling the economic side and Russia's handling the security side. I think that started to change a little bit. Um, one, because Russia has become a little bit more proactive in, in terms of both trying to bring Central Asia into an economic union, but perhaps also in terms of trying to do more bilateral kind of economic aid as well. Again, dwarfed completely by what China is doing. At the same time, China is playing a much more direct role in terms of its uh, security uh, involvement. So we've seen um, Chinese bases popping up in, in Tajikistan, for example, and you know there may be other areas where, where China is cooperating with these with these regimes. So that that seems to be shifting. There are no overt tensions between Russia and China in this process, at least at least not yet. I don't know if behind the scenes there are more kind of concerns about this, but as far as I can tell, there isn't, um, there isn't much going on. Between the specter of a Russian invasion of Ukraine and the recent deployment of Russian-led troops to put down protests in Kazakhstan, Putin's Russia seems intent on re-establishing control over the former Soviet sphere of influence. What do these developments mean politically and socially for Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan? I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Putin is necessarily intent on establishing control. I think Putin does see it as Russia's sphere of influence. And what that means specifically is, of course, different in, in each context. You know, Kazakhstan does border Russia. And I think Putin maybe in a way identifies with that regime in a way that he might not with the regime in, let's say, Tajikistan. At the same time, you know, Russia does encourage the countries in the region to think of Russia as a kind of security patron. I think. You know, what we saw in Kazakhstan, I think, is a bit of a change in the sense that in previous situations, Russia's always stayed out, right? So in all the unrest in Kyrgyzstan, you know, Russia never sent in its own forces. And, you know, even in the civil war in Tajikistan in the 1990s, though, the very different situation, Russia did kind of tip the scales a bit, but it was really not a very heavy kind of involvement. And I think now, I think the Putin regime is becoming more and more conservative in terms of how much wiggle room it believes you can have in society while maintaining uh, stability. And I think as a result, it's also more proactive in um, kind of making sure that these regimes can withstand uh, any, kind of, uh, any kind of unrest. Um, so I think, you know, from the point of view of, uh, you know, of Sharkat Mizioyev, Russia's involvement in Kazakhstan is great, right? Because I don't think they're really worried about Russia trying to take over. That's not really a concern. But you know, they're happy to know that if they ever face massive street protests uh, and they're having trouble handling them on their own, there is this mechanism for them to get help. And then finally, is there anything else that you'd like to note or to discuss on the present and future of Central Asian-Russian relations? 
Well, as a historian, I try not to talk very much about the future. What I would hope is, you know, we know that, you know, Russia uh, is quite dependent on labor from Central Asia and, and to an extent the Central Asian economies and Central Asian and people in particularly in Tajikistan and, and Kyrgyzstan are, you know, are, are forced by circumstances to, to seek employment there. And I, I hope that um, at the very least, you know, this closer integration will mean better treatment of people who are going to Russia for, you know, to work. Unfortunately, what we've seen in the past is, you know, uh, the kind of situation of, um, of these people is sometimes used as leverage in relations between um, Russia and uh, Tajikistan, say. Uh, and that's, you know, that's uh, very unfortunate. I think these people's lives are hard enough. But at the same time, uh, you know, I don't really see that changing, right? If we're, <laughs> if we're going to be kind of hard-headed realists, Right. Um, you know, Putin is going to use whatever leverage he has available. Um, and, and that includes, uh, unfortunately, uh, people. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Professor Kalinowski for the opportunity to speak with him. Be sure to check out his books, A Long Goodbye and The Laboratory of Socialist Development, which can both be found on Amazon. We'll see you next time.